0: You are listening to New Covenant Thoughts. Well, it's past week on the way to and from work. I have been really enjoying an 80s station on Pandora Radio. taking taken me way back to my childhood. I was enjoying some Debbie Gibson, some Paula Abdul, some Phil Collins, and of course, the King of Pop himself, Michael Jackson. Yes. Now, when I heard these songs, my attitude wasn't, I've heard this before, which station, I want something fresh and brand new and exciting. In fact, I kept it on that station because of my familiarity with those songs, because of the fact that I had heard them so many times in the past. And due to my familiarity with them, I embraced them and I rejoiced in them. And I hope that for you guys who have been here with us for the past several years, weeks and even months now, um, and our series is on the kingdom, plural. Um, I hope that this morning's message is much like that 80s Pandora station, that that the content for you, though it is familiar, will not be something uh, to which you respond with, I've already heard that, on with something fresh and new. Hopefully, you will receive it and embrace it and rejoice in it. I'm kind of envisioning, uh, not necessarily soliciting this action, but at least the attitude of a church where everybody already knows what the pastor is going to say because they're they're, they're, they're just there and, and he gets a lot of amen. Amen. I'm not saying we need to go there with the amens. I'm just saying that attitude is kind of what we're going for this morning. Whereas you say yes, I, I I've heard this, I'm getting this, and in fact, I'd be willing to say that if if you have been here with us for this journey over these past two sermon series on the kingdom. The kingdom, what it is, and the kingdom, what it's like. I'd be willing to bet that due to this morning's message, you'll be able to connect some dots that you may not have connected before. Uh, For example, uh, yesterday, listening to 80s Pandora music, I happened upon the funky cold Medina, and for the first time it occurred to me oh, I get what he's saying now when he says, like Mick Jagger said, I can't get no satisfaction. See, when I was a kid, I had heard that song dozens of times, but didn't know who Mick Jagger was when I was a kid. But now, hearing this later, again, for the however many times I heard it, connecting dots. So, this morning, you're going to hear content that you have heard before, no doubt. Content that you're probably familiar with, but... Probably, in a way, that's going to allow you to connect some dots that you hadn't connected before. Now, whereas our previous sermon series have been much like uh, taking a microscope or a magnifying glass to a couple square inches of sediment, this morning we're going to zoom way back and get more of a a bird's eye view of the terrain. Get kind of a big picture, kind of a message as we do this broad, general sweep through our understanding of... The kingdom. So this morning we do move into a new series entitled The Kingdom What It Means, where we kind of follow up these two previous series with the question okay, so if we are in the kingdom, if we are the kingdom, what does that mean? What does that mean for me? What does it mean for us as citizens in the kingdom? How then shall we live? What does that mean for our lives? And so we'll kind of make some practical everyday application for us living in the 21st century as God's new covenant community. Now, this will pretty much be like any sermon series you'll hear at any church. The only difference is that it's going to be framed in the context of the kingdom, which chances are you probably won't normally hear at a typical church service. So let's let's do this. Let's kind of take a step back and get a bird's eye view, get a bird's eye view of the terrain and get kind of a big picture of the kingdom, kind of refresh our memory on what it is that we've looked at for 25 weeks now, so that that'll be fresh on our minds as we move forward looking at the kingdom, what it means, and then make application. So when I go through this, I'm not going to be reading every single Bible verse that I reference. We've already done that in the previous series, and it would take all day just to read those verses so I would encourage you to be a Berean as it is written in Acts chapter 17 um, it said of the Bereans that they were more noble than the Thessalonians because they would just take Paul at his work, they didn't just go oh, okay, Paul said it, it's gospel they searched the scriptures to see if the things that Paul was, saying, Paul was saying were true, and so I want you to do the same thing, don't just go okay Pastor David said it, then it's gospel I want you to, okay, take notes write down verses and go on and check those out. And no need to freak out. <coughs> the manuscript from which I'm preaching this morning will be made available to you online. If you can't wait until it gets uploaded, then holler at me after the sermon. I will email it right to you right away so you'll have it. But there's no need to freak out because you can't keep up with me and you're writing stuff down. I've got all this document. So, take a deep breath and relax. Okay, so when I say the kingdom, what, what am I even talking about? The kingdom. I'm talking about. That which is referred to in the scriptures as the kingdom of heaven, as we find in Matthew 13, for example, several times. I'm also talking about that which is referred to in the scriptures as the kingdom of God, as Luke 13 refers to. Now, these aren't two different kingdoms. They're one and the same. The kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of God. It's also referred to as the kingdom of Christ in Ephesians chapter 5. Now, we kind of gave a working definition, a basic definition of the kingdom. And I'll remind you of that and kind of bring that uh, to the forefront of your minds. And that is this. The kingdom is the community or territory over which Christ reigns as king. Okay? The community or the territory over which Christ reigns as king. You've got the king and you've got the citizens. Jesus is the king. The citizens, that's you and I. So essentially we could say that we are in the kingdom. We say that we are the kingdom. All right? Now some other things to note about the kingdom is that the Bible also refers to the kingdom as the kingdom of David. We find that in Mark chapter 11, verse 10. The Bible also refers to the kingdom as the restoration of Israel. We find that in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. We also find the scriptures referring to the kingdom as that which corresponds to the age to come. The Jews typically... Uh, broke history down into two major ages, what they referred to in their time as the present age and what they anticipated in the age to come. And in simple terms, the present age for them was the Old Covenant age, the time period under which they served in the administration of the Old Covenant. The Law of Moses was essentially the law that governed them during that time, the Old Covenant order. The age to come, from their perspective, was the New Covenant Age. But, obviously, for you and I, that is not still to come, that is present. And that is the Kingdom. The Kingdom corresponds to what we find in the Scriptures called the Age to Come. Okay, The Messianic Age, the Age of the Messiah, is the Kingdom. The Kingdom is also the antitype of Old Covenant Israel living under the law in the Promised Land. Now that's a mouthful. Um, let me kind of break that down a little bit for you and maybe simplify it. We see in the, in the Old Testament uh, types and shadows which are simply Old Testament people, places, things and events that foreshadow spiritual realities that you find in the New Testament. And so, in the Old Testament we find ethnic Israel living in a geographically defined promised land under the Old Covenant and that is a type or shadow which foreshadows the kingdom, which is the spiritual reality typified by Old Covenant Israel. So you and I as New Covenant community of God, citizens of the kingdom, we are the antitype of Old Covenant Israel, living in the promised land under the law. Now the kingdom is also referred to in the scriptures as the inheritance of the saints. Now that goes hand in hand with the whole anti-type concept. Because in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, we find in the book of Joshua that the promised land was their inheritance. God promised to give that land to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. And that, that land was kind of rationed out as the inheritance of the different specific tribes. You've got 12 different tribes of Israel, and you've got that land kind of broken up into different sections. And this particular section belongs to the tribe of Dan. That's their inheritance. This section belongs to the tribe of Naphtali. This particular section belongs to the tribe of, uh, you know, Judah. So you've got it. the inheritance of Israel was the land. Well, the kingdom, as the antitype of that which we find in the Old Covenant, the kingdom is the inheritance of the saints. And if you're taking notes and you want Bible references for that, you can find it all over the place. Matthew 25, verse 34, Jesus. Says that the kingdom is the inheritance of the saints. Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, as well as James 2 5 are places that we find the kingdom referred to as the inheritance of the saints. Okay? The church is the kingdom. Find that in Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. What else do we see the kingdom referred to as in scriptures? The gospel. Okay? I think I hammered this home if you were here for the very, 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 very beginning of our sermon series is on the kingdom. I hammered this home. But I'll say it again. The gospel is the kingdom. The kingdom is the gospel. gospel is a fancy word, it just means good news. The good news is the kingdom of God has come. Okay? Find that all over the place. Too many verses to cite. I'll just give you a couple of them. Matthew 24, and Acts 8, 12. The kingdom is and God, And finally, I want to point out that the kingdom was the central teaching of Jesus. If you look at all the teachings of Jesus, it hinges on, it's it centered on the kingdom. That was his message. The kingdom of God. Now, one thing we have to keep in mind is that Jesus didn't just come on the scene and bring up this idea of the kingdom out of nowhere. Okay? He didn't come on the scene and start preaching the kingdom They go, oh, Oh, that, never heard of this idea before. See, this message of the kingdom was not preached in a vacuum. Okay? It's preached with the Old Testament as the theological backdrop, as the foundation. In other words, the kingdom of heaven, aka okay, the kingdom of God, aka okay, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of David, the restoration of Israel, the kingdom is the culmination of Jewish history and the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. It is the culmination of Jewish history and the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Israel's history has a lot to play into our understanding of the kingdom. In the Old Testament we find that God has set apart a chosen people to belong to himself as his very own treasured possession. That people were were the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. Him and his twelve sons of their descendants that made up God's chosen nation his covenant community Israel. they kind of had a rocky history that they always had human leadership never a king literally on the throne in essence God was their king kind of had a theocracy going on but one day you find this in First Samuel chapter 8 I believe one day they, they kind of wanted to be like all the other nations around them so they said to their prophet, Samuel, put a king over us so that he can go out and fight our battles and we can be like all the other nations. Well, this was disturbing to Samuel. And so he kind of had a conversation with God. about these people, there weren't king over them. This is disturbing. And God essentially tells Samuel, don't worry about it. It's not like they're rejecting you. They're rejecting me as their king. They're rejecting me as their king. But you know what? They're insisting on this. Do it. Anoint the king over them, but warn them about all of the lame things that the king is going to do to them. by like taking their sons to be his servants and taking their vineyards and giving them to his administration and you know all kinds of politics and taxes and he's going to put heavy burdens on them. Warn them, give it to them. That's what they want, so he did. Saul was anointed as the first king over Israel. He was extremely lame. At the end, he was followed by King David who was followed by his son, Solomon. And those first three kings represent a time in Israel known as the United Kingdom. That's when all the world tribes of Israel were united under one king as one kingdom. And it was a fairly glorious time in Israel's history. It was a time, especially during the reign of Solomon, and after David had put all of God's people's enemies under his feet, or rather, after God had put all of their enemies under the king's feet. They enjoyed a time of peace and prosperity. They were the nation of nations. Their king was the king of kings. They were the head, not the tail. They were a glorious nation. Well, over time, after Solomon, uh, under his son, the kingdom divided into the north and the south. The north retained the name Israel, the south went by the name of Judah, which was one of the two southern tribes and northern tribes again retain the name Israel but eventually both of them were brought low due to their sin, due to their disobedience to the covenant the law of Moses according to the covenant if they were disobedient God would bring a nation against them to destroy them and bring them into Israel. and that happened to the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. when Assyria came against them destroyed them and carried them off into captivity then in 586 B.C. God brought Babylon against Judah carried them off into captivity and into exile. So the once glorious, world-dominating superpower nation, Israel, both her northern kingdom and her southern kingdom, were brought low to the dust. <laughs> to use biblical terms, terms of the prophets, God put her to death. She was cast out of his presence. God's presence was in that promised land. She was cast out of the land because of the fact that she had defiled the land. So Israel looked forward to a time when she would be restored to her former glory. She longed to be restored to the way that she was under Solomon. She longed for that peace and prosperity, to be that glorious nation, the nation of nations, the head, not the tail, first, not last. And not only did Israel hope for this, God promised this to Israel. And God promised this to Israel through his servants, the prophets. The prophets were messengers of God who spoke his messages on his behalf to the people. And as we kind of look at the prophets in the past, we liken them to a syllabus saying, just as you come into a college course, a good professor will give you a syllabus at the front end so that you know what to expect in the course. So God's Prophets were very much like the syllabus. Hey, you can expect this and this and this and this. So let's kind of recap on some of the things that God had foretold through his prophets regarding the kingdom to come. Well, the first thing that we noted is that according to this syllabus, God was known by the scholars as the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God made with and to and for David. And in investigating this uh, Davidic covenant, we started out in um, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And if you want more on this, if you want to go more in-depth on this, um, I will refer you to the kingdom, what what it is, part 3. We explore this in depth. But I'll just read to you very briefly from 2 Samuel 7 to kind of refresh your memory on this Davidic covenant. This is God through the prophet Nathan speaking to King David. Now remember, Historical context here, this is during that prosperous, glorious time of Israel. During the United Kingdom, during the time of Israel's glory. This is what God says to David through his son of the prophet Nathan. Second Samuel 7, beginning in verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord, Jehovah himself, will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Now remember, this is God speaking through the prophet Nathan, saying, number one, I'm going to establish a house for you, David. I'm going to raise up your son, your offspring, to succeed you, and I will establish his throne forever. So we're talking about an everlasting kingdom here that is has a throne upon which is seated a descendant of David. And look what it says. It says that he will build a house for God's name to dwell in. In other words, he'll build a temple. And it says that I will be his father, God speaking here, God will be his father and he will be my son. So in a sense, this descendant of David is going to be the son of God. I will be his father, he will be my son, and he does wrong, verse 14, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men, but my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me. Your throne will be established forever. So remember, as we opened up, we said that another term for the kingdom is the kingdom of David. Remember, Mark refers to it as that. Well, here we have in 2 Samuel 7, God speaking to David, saying, Your house and your kingdom, in other words, the kingdom of David, will endure forever. What we're talking about here is that everlasting kingdom. We're talking about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God that Jesus came preaching and teaching, the kingdom over which he came to rule. Now, several times this promise this the Davidic covenant is perpetuated throughout the Old Testament. And can find verse after verse after verse. If you just go to BibleGateway.com and type in, under keyword search, never fail David upon it. But essentially, God promises that David will never fail to have a descendant upon the throne, ruling over the house of Israel. Well, the problem with that, or at least the apparent problem with that, is remember what we said about Babylon coming to destroy Judah back in 586 B.C., in 597, remember how time works in B.C., kind of worked backwards. So in 597 B.C., Babylon comes to lay siege to Jerusalem. And so it's not looking good for the Jews. Okay, God sends his servant, the prophet Jeremiah, with a message of, Hey, you guys sinned again, so God is bringing a nation against you to destroy you. Yep. The false prophets are over here telling you peace and security and safety and what you're itching your head to and that God's going to protect you in the temple because that's where He dwells and all that. But don't listen to him. I'm telling you the truth. God's bringing Nebuchadnezzar and his army, King of Babylon, to come and destroy you, lay waste to the nation, lay waste to the temple. It's happened. Well, you know what that means, right? That God's promise to always have a descendant of David on the throne ruling over Israel, that's not really going to happen if you just destroyed the nation and the throne and all that. It's not going to have a throne to rule over. These guys destroying it. Done. So it looks bleak. It looks like God's promises are going to fail. So in the midst of Jeremiah's message of gloom and doom and hey, you guys messed up so God's going to punish you according to the covenant, there's a message of hope and restoration. In Jeremiah 33, uh, Starts way earlier than this, but I won't bore you by reading you a huge chunk of scripture. I just kind of reiterate the earlier part, but I think the key part uh, to pay attention to here is verses 14 through 17. Jeremiah says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the gracious promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days, and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, Jehovah, our righteousness. For this is what Jehovah says: David will never fail to have a descendant sit on the throne of the house of Israel. In other words, I'm not going to fail to keep my promise. You guys are going to be destroyed right now, but I will restore you. And when I do restore you, at that time, Judah will be saved, and I will raise up a righteous branch from the line of David to sit on the throne, and I will fulfill my promise to always keep a man from the lineage of David on the throne over Israel forever. Question, when, when in history does God raise up a righteous branch from the line of David who rules with justice and righteousness in the land? Better yet, when does God raise up a righteous branch from the line of David? No, we're not talking literal branches here. We're talking about a descendant of David, okay? When does God raise up a descendant of David who is also called Jehovah, our righteousness? When do humanity and divinity kiss in one human being in the course of history? When? In whom do we find this fulfilled? In Jesus. So, at this time, what do we find? We find God's promise to perpetuate the kingdom, this everlasting kingdom that belongs to the descendants of David. We find that that kingdom will endure forever. In other words, we've got the kingdom foretold in 2 Samuel 7, the everlasting kingdom. Now, in Jeremiah 33, we have connected to this promise, this promise of the righteous branch, who's also called Jehovah, our righteousness. Jesus, who's human and divine, who's descendant of David and God in the flesh. Connected to this promise, we have in verse seven a return to the land from exile. Because remember, they were laid waste, they were carried into exile and captivity. We've got a promise to return to the land, verse seven. In verse eleven we have a promise of restoration to glory. Remember, that was what Israel longed for. We were laying waste, laid low to the dust. We longed to be restored to our (coughs) Lord, to prosperity, nation of nations, will dominate the superpower. And we also have cleansing from sin, verse 8. So, the constituent elements, to use a fancy term, the elements that belong to this promise of the righteous branch, aka Jesus, cleansing from sin, restoration of Israel, and return to the land. All right? Now, moving forward in... I bring that up for a reason, okay? Moving forward in the prophecies, we move into Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, we find the regeneration. And that's a complex doctrine. If you want more on that, I will refer you back to part four of the kingdom, what it is. You can get in depth on that there, but I'll just do a kind of quick sweep through what we find in Ezekiel 36, the same constituent elements we have in Jeremiah 33. Cleansing from sin... Restoration to glory and a return to the land. So, in essence, if Jeremiah 33 is about the kingdom and Ezekiel 36 is a parallel text to Jeremiah 34, then Ezekiel 36 is about the kingdom. And if Ezekiel 36 is about the regeneration, then the regeneration pertains to the kingdom. Okay. Following me there? Not only that, but in the Gospel, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus says, In the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who are following will also sit on twelve thrones and run over the twelve tribes of Israel. In other words, Jesus connects the regeneration to the time when he sits on his glorious throne. When does Jesus sit on his glorious throne? In the kingdom. In other words, the regeneration goes hand in hand with the kingdom. The time of renewal of all things, as the NIV puts it, or the new world, as the ESV puts it, is the time of the kingdom. In other words, once again, this is the age to come as spoken of in the scriptures. Now to just run through those um, elements of Ezekiel 36 and verse 24, God's elect would be gathered from the nations. There would be a gathering of the elect from exile back into the land. And... Uh, Ezekiel 36, verse 25, God's people would be sprinkled with clean water. God would, verse 26, regenerate Israel. In other words, the kingdom would be accompanied by a time of regeneration. When Israel would receive a new heart. When God would remove her heart of stone and give her a heart of flesh. When he would put his spirit in Israel and cause Israel to be obedient. In verse 27, Israel will be his people. He will be... Their God. Now here's where you may connect God. It's kind of some funky Comedina dot connecting right here. Maybe when you hear "I will be their God, they will be my people," maybe you're thinking, "Ah, oh, I've heard that." Hebrews eight, Jeremiah thirty-one. That's New Covenant. New Covenant corresponds to the kingdom. Ezekiel thirty-six is about the kingdom. Verse twenty-eight. God's people will be saved from uncleanness. Is this not the gospel? Salvation from sin. Gospel is the kingdom. Verse 29. those people will be cleansed from sins. Again, is that not the kingdom? Verse 33. Israel will be restored and gathered to the land. Same constituent elements that correspond to the righteous branch, a.k.a. Jesus. Verse 35. The land will be like the garden of Eden. Again, restored to a place where there's fellowship with God. Man is provided for and cared for, and there is, once again, restored fellowship. Okay, moving on to the next thing that we saw in the prophets, resurrection. In terms of the prophets, when God brought his people into exile, they considered themselves dead. Exile equals death. Being brought back into the land equals life. So, as part of the kingdom, God's people Israel foresaw a resurrection being brought from death to life, being brought from exile, having been cast out of his presence, brought back into his presence in the land to restore fellowship with God. And we find that in Hosea 5 and 6, as well as Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37 is connected to Ezekiel 36. There's no surprise there that these go hand in hand. All right. Next thing that we find is a reuniting of the north and the south. Remember, under the son of Solomon, Rehoboam, the kingdom divided. You had the northern ten tribes of Israel, and you had the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And so what Ezekiel 37 foretells is in the time of the kingdom, these two will be brought back into one, reunited as one kingdom under one king, and Ezekiel 37 calls that king David. Now, we know that he's not talking about literal David, because by the time Ezekiel had been written, David had been dead for like 200 years. We're talking about a descendant of David. We're talking about this same righteous branch from the line of David, who we know as Jesus the Christ. All right, the next thing that we see in uh, the prophets regarding the kingdom is that it will include Gentiles. We find that in uh, Isaiah chapter 11, and if you want more on that, you can um, refer to part 7 of the kingdom what it is uh, I'm going to um, skip over uh, a lot of the detail with regard to that I think that's sufficient to say that the kingdom will include Gentiles um, moving into Daniel we found some interesting things about the timing of the kingdom King Nebuchadnezzar whom Daniel was serving at the time as an exile as a Jew was an exile in Babylon Nebuchadnezzar was having some dreams that were troubling to him he envisioned in his dream a statue that had these four parts, a head, a chest, a belly, thighs, and feet, and uh, he saw this rock come and smash the statue to pieces, and then that rock kind of grew to become this huge mountain, of the whole earth. Well, you may kind of recall this story because it's a lot of fun, but... He called all his wise men, enchanters, astrologers, and sorcerers to come. And he said, hey, I need you guys to tell me what my dream was and interpret it. And of course, you can't really do that. And so they're all like, look, tell us what the dream was and we'll interpret it. And he's like, no, 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 if you're the real deal, you can tell me what my dream was. Nobody can do it. So he kind of issued this decree to put everybody to death, all of the wise men and enchanters. Daniel heard of this, and he says, look. I can do this, although it's not my power. God, the God of Heaven, He can reveal this to me. So bring it to the king. Let's let's do this thing. So He tells the king the dream exactly as it happened, and Nebuchadnezzar's like, okay, you got my attention. That's exactly what it was. Okay, so now for the interpretation. So Daniel interprets this dream and he says, look, those four elements of this statue <coughs> represent four kings. Okay, you. And your kingdom, Babylon, are represented by this head of gold. And after you is this chest of silver. And that's representative of a nation that will come after you. And virtually all scholars agree that this is representative of the Medo Persian Empire that followed Babylon as the world-dominating superpower. And then that next section represents the third kingdom. And Daniel didn't name off this kingdom in his interpretation. You can find this in virtually every comment commentary you read. But this third section represents the third kingdom, which is the kingdom that followed Medo-Persia, which is Greece. And then finally, there's the fourth kingdom, and that fourth kingdom uh, was represented in this statue of feet made partly of clay and partly of iron, so this was kind of a mixed kingdom. But this was the fourth kingdom, the kingdom that followed Greece as the world-dominating superpower, which virtually all scholars agree is Rome. What's the deal with the mixture of iron and clay? Well, throughout the scriptures, clay represents Israel. So, what you've got represented in the statue is a time when Rome is mixing with Israel. Israel is mixing with Rome. And of course, there's about a time when the Roman Empire is all up in Israel's business, and Israel kind of has to deal with it, and so they're mixing. But, as Daniel points out in his interpretation of the dream, these two don't mix very well. Well, in the end, we know that Rome... And Israel, they didn't make it so well. But in the dream, we've got this rock cut off, but not by human hands. Daniel says that this is another kingdom. And that comes and smashes the entire statue to pieces, and then this grows to become a huge mountain for the whole earth. Well, Daniel says, look, here's, here's a, a kingdom that follows it. A kingdom, not of this world. It's not cut off by human hands. It's a kingdom that it's not going to be handed over to another nation, just as these others were, because when you got these other Gentile kingdoms, whoever is the strongest wins. Babylon, they were awesome for a while, but then they got overpowered by medo Persia. They were awesome for a while, but they got overpowered by Greece. They were great for a while, but then they got overpowered by Rome. And, but this kingdom, it's not like that. It's not the kind that's going to be handed over. It's the kind that's going to endure forever. It's a kingdom not of this world. It is the kingdom of heaven. And what Daniel says in Daniel 2.44 is that it will be established in the time of those kings. And we stressed this back then, I'm going to stress it again, in the time of those kings. In other words, Scripture limits the timing of the kingdom to no later than the Roman Empire. Because the Roman Empire was the last of those kings, the time of those kings. That's when God would set up the kingdom that would endure forever and not be handed over to another nation. So we've got from the prophets the timing (coughs) of the kingdom. And we've also got the nature of the kingdom cut out but not by human hands. That is a term throughout the scriptures that refers to something of God, not of men. We see that phrase referring to the temple. We've got a temple built with human hands, and then we've got a temple not built with human hands. So so these were Israel's expectations. This was their prophets. This was their syllabus. This is what they looked forward to. Now, of course, they had their own understanding of those prophecies, and they interpreted those prophecies through their own lenses. They kind of had their own presuppositions about what the kingdom would be like. And in my best estimation, based on their response to Jesus, was that it would be very much like the kingdom of old. that they would still continue to be a kingdom defined by geographical borders, a land that had geographical boundaries, that they would continue to be a people defined by fleshly circumcision, that they would continue to be a people defined by ethnicity, literal flesh and blood descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they would continue to be a people defined by the law of Moses, and that they would continue to be a people who worshipped at a physical temple built with human hands. In my best estimation, they expected a king who would come riding in on a horse, who would rise up against these physical Gentile enemies, namely Rome, so that they would once again be the world-dominating <coughs> superpower ruling over the Gentiles. Yes, the prophecies say that Gentiles can come into the kingdom, but they will certainly be second-class citizens to us, the Jews according to the flesh. Now it's hard to deny that the time of Jesus' ministry was the time for the fulfillment of the kingdom. Number one, you've got Jesus saying, the time has come, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Number two, you've got John the Baptist who came before him who said, repent, the time is near, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Furthermore, you've got John the Baptist essentially manifesting the messenger who was foretold in Malachi 3 and 4. The messenger who would be sent to prepare the way of the Lord and turn the hearts of the children to their fathers and the hearts of the fathers to their children to prepare the way for the Messiah. Here you have in Jesus a descendant of David performing miracles. It's hard to deny that this was the time for fulfillment of the kingdom. After all, it was the time of those kings. Rome was the rule of the day. They had seen Babylon come <coughs> <kingdom>, and go, Meadow Persia come <coughs> and go, Greece come and go, and here it was, four kingdom. Iron mixing with clay. It's at hand. It is now. The kingdom is at hand. But again, they had their own understanding. So, by and large, because they had in their own minds a picture of what the king would be and what the kingdom would look, would look like, by and large, they missed it. They were expecting natural things. They were expecting physical things. They were expecting literal things. So by and large, they missed the spiritual fulfillment of their Messiah. And those today who are still looking for physical fulfillment, looking for a physical king to reign on a physical throne in an earthly Jerusalem defined by geographical borders, are missing it. They're missing out on the glorious kingdom that has come. Well, again, they had one thing in mind, but what they got was something entirely different. They were expecting, again, a literal and physical <coughs> kingdom, but what they got was a spiritual kingdom. Remember, the, the scriptures can be looked at in terms of types and shadows. Now, the kingdom is the antitype of Old Covenant Israel under the law. In other words, the kingdom is a spiritual reality. The kingdom has no geographical borders as the land under the Old Covenant did. The kingdom is a heavenly habitation. That's why it's called the kingdom of heaven. Additionally, in Luke 17, once, uh, when Jesus was asked by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, uh, you find this in Luke 17:20 20 and 21, uh, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked him when the kingdom of God would come. Jesus replied, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. In other words, the kingdom is not going to be manifest in such a way that you can observe it with your physical eyes. You're not going to be able to say, there it is, or here it is, it's within you. It's a spiritual reality, not a physical, earthly, fleshly reality. And then you move into John. In John chapter 6, after Jesus provided all kinds of food for all kinds of people out of just a few fish and loaves, the people were about to try to make him king by force, and Jesus perceived this, so what did he do? He said, here I am, I'm your king, let's do this thing. No, he withdrew to a quiet place by himself. Why would he do that? If Jesus' whole mission was to come and preach the kingdom, to come and be the king who was to sit on the throne over the house of David, if he was the king to rule over the kingdom that was promised, why didn't he just go, yeah, you're right, I'm the king, here I am, put me on the throne. Because the kingdom that they were trying to make him a king over was not the kind of kingdom that he came to rule over. He came to rule over a heavenly kingdom not an earthly kingdom. But of course, they wanted an earthly kingdom. And a lot of people today still want an earthly kingdom. But, as with all antitypes in the scriptures, the antitype is always far greater, more glorious, and superior to the type that foreshadowed it. Why would we want an earthly kingdom defined by geographical borders and an earthly kingdom and an earthly throne and an earthly... In John 18, in his pre-crucifixion trial, he was asked, are you a king? And Jesus' response is, yes, it is as you say. In verse 36 he says, but my kingdom is not of this world. If it was of this world, then I'd just have my disciples come and release me right now. Get me out of this predicament. But my kingdom is not of this world. So, what the Jews had expected in the coming kingdom, in the kingdom foretold in their prophets, wasn't the kingdom they got. And So they rejected Jesus. In the end, because of their rejection of Jesus, Jesus rejected them. Again, they expected a kingdom in which the covenant community would be defined by those five markers. Just as they were in the, quote, present age. All right? And those five identifying markers still identify God's covenant uh, citizens, Um, but they take them spiritual terms in the kingdom. Okay? Let me me break this down. Under the Old Covenant administration, under the present age, according to the scriptures, um, in the Old Covenant, they were defined by uh, descent from Abraham. They were the children of Abraham, right? According to the flesh, literal flesh and blood descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the New Covenant community, in the kingdom, we are still children of Abraham, but according to the book of Galatians, specifically, uh, Galatians 3.7, we're children of Abraham, not by flesh and blood, but by faith. Okay? Under the Old Covenant Administration, they were under the law of Moses. They were under Torah. But under the New Covenant Administration, under the in the kingdom, we're not under the law of Moses, but the law of Christ. Under the Old Covenant Administration, they were defined by circumcision, circumcision of the flesh, a flesh the circumcision. Well, there's still circumcision in the New Covenant, but it is a circumcision of the heart done by the spirit, not according to the written code. Romans 2, 28 and 29. In the Old Covenant, they define themselves in terms of a temple built with human hands. In the New Covenant, in the kingdom, there's still a temple, but it is not a temple built with human hands, but a temple made up of living stones with the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus as its chief cornerstone. Ephesians chapter 2, 2 Corinthians 6, 1 Peter chapter 2. We make up the temple of the living God in the kingdom. His presence dwelleth in us. (laughs) And the land in the old covenant order was defined again by geographical boundaries, but the land in the new covenant community, the land in the kingdom, is a heavenly land. Because it's a heavenly habitation that knows no geographical borders. Hebrews 12.22 Again, they did not get exactly what they were anticipating. The king that they expected? Jesus didn't quite resemble this king. Yes, descendant of David. Yes, God in the flesh. I tell the truth before Abraham was born. I am. John 8.58 I and the father are one. John 10.10 He made the claims, but they wanted to stone him. They didn't recognize him for who he was. He was born in a manger, he rode into town on a donkey, and in the end, he was crucified. That's not supposed to happen to the Messiah. He's not supposed to go down like that. And this Jesus, he came to shed light on the kingdom. Again, the kingdom was at the center of his message. That was his favorite thing to teach about. Over and over and over again, we hear from the mouth of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is light. So what are some of the things that Jesus likened the kingdom to? Well, first we explore throughout Matthew 13. First, Jesus likened the kingdom to a farmer who sowed seed in his field. He sowed wheat. Well, out of nowhere he's got some weeds sprouting up. The kind of weeds that according to the Greek are they look just like the wheat. You really can't tell them apart unless you get up close and examine them intently. So the just in this story that Jesus tells, because he told a lot of parables, these stories that were made up in order to communicate spiritual truth, in this story, the servants came to the farmer and said, hey, I thought you sowed good seed in your field. Why are there weeds springing up? And his answer was, an enemy did this. Well, their response was, because they were good servants, hey, you want us to go and pull the weeds up? And he said, no, 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 leave them until the harvest. At the harvest, we'll go ahead and pull them up, we'll tie the weeds in the bundles and burn them in the fire and will gather the wheat into my barn. And Jesus actually explains this parable to his disciples. He didn't always explain the parables. He taught in parables for several purposes. One purpose was to conceal the truth from those who were perishing so that those who did not have eyes to see or ears to hear would not perceive or understand the message. But he did explain the message, the parables, to his disciples to those who were on the inside who did have eyes to see and ears to hear to those who were of faith so that they would perceive and understand the message and thus be saved. Well, Jesus is going the parable and says the harvest is the end of the age and at the end of the age those who are not truly part of the kingdom those who do not belong to the kingdom those who are sons of the evil one are going to be burned in the fire. <coughs> but there will be a gathering of the elect into the kingdom. So, in other words, at the end of the age, remember, not the end of the planet, not the end of human history, but the end of the old covenant age. At the end of the old covenant age, manifest <coughs> in the end of 70 A.D., there was a distinction. Weeds, represented by the unbelieving Jews, burned in the fire. What fire? God brought Rome against Jerusalem to set fire to her and to destroy her for her disbelief. But those who believed were saved, given their inheritance in the kingdom. Jesus goes on. Uh, What else shall I liken the kingdom to? It's kind of like a mustard seed. It's kind of like yeast. What did he mean by that? Well, it starts out really small, gets really big. Though it has seemingly insignificant and humble beginnings, it grows into something marvelous, magnificent, and massive. Wait, 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 wait Jesus. That doesn't make any sense because the kingdom belongs to Israel. We're already as numerous as the sand on the sea and stars in the sky. Yeah, here's the thing, guys. Remember that whole parable about the weeds and the wheat? Not everybody who claims to be a descendant of... Jacob and Abraham is truly a descendant of Abraham because God's people are no longer defined by race, but by grace. There's a new definition to who God's true people are. God's true people are in Christ. They don't believe in Christ? You're not really part of God's people. This goes hand in hand with what John the Baptist told many of the Pharisees and teachers of the law who were to him to be baptized. He said, you brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the coming coming wrath? And don't think that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you the truth. God can raise up children for Abraham from these stones. Look, the axe is already at the root of the tree. And God is about to cut down every tree that does not bear good fruit. Throw it into the fire. In other words... Don't think that because you're flesh and blood descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that you get the kingdom. Or that you belong to the kingdom. Or that you are the kingdom. God can make children of the kingdom from stones if He wanted to. And in fact, he's about to do something that you're going to detest. He's going to make a bunch of Gentiles into citizens of the kingdom. And you're said. Sons of the kingdom are going to be thrown out. Those outside of the kingdom are going to be brought in. I tell you the truth, many from the east and the west are going to sit down at the feast of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. But the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out. In Matthew chapter 8. Don't say my word for it right now. Check it out. Alright. What else is the kingdom like? The kingdom is like a treasure hidden in the field. It's also like a pearl that a merchant sought after. Finally he found it. And when this great treasure was found he sold everything he had and went and bought it in other words the kingdom is extremely valuable and we looked at this in kind of two different ways saying that this could be interpreted kind of from two different viewpoints one viewpoint we said okay from a human perspective to a human the kingdom of God is worthy of investing in to the decree that we as a human being should give up everything in order to attain to the kingdom and be a part of it. We looked at it from another perspective of saying that God gave up everything because he saw his people, his kingdom, his treasured possession as being so valuable. He would give up everything. He would shed his divinity take on humanity as we looked at in Philippians chapter 2 he became flesh and made his dwelling among us and he set aside his divine prerogatives and came, king humbled himself became a man became obedient to death even death on a cross gave up everything for the sake of purchasing with his own blood the kingdom this pearl of great price his people what else did Jesus say the kingdom was like he said it was like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. I won't bore you with another explanation of the fact that at the end of the age there will be a distinction between the wicked and the righteous, fat fish and good fish. Same exact thing as the wheat and the weeds communicated just in different terms. What else did the kingdom of heaven like? It's it's like this uh, king that wanted to settle accounts with his servants and so uh, when he began it he called in a man who owed him um, X amount of talents and uh, so The guy said, look, I can't pay you back. Be merciful on me. And so the king said, okay, you're free to go. But then that servant went out found another fellow servant who owed him not even close to the same amount, something that could actually be paid back. And he choked him and said, pay back what you owe. The kingdom of heaven is a place of grace is what Jesus communicates by this story. Because in the end of this story, the king finds out that this servant that he was merciful on went and was not merciful to his fellow servant and so he ended up suffering wrath for that. He says, Should you not have been merciful to your fellow servant as I was to you? So by that, Jesus is communicating that the kingdom is a place where those who are citizens experience the grace of the king and should extend that grace to others. And finally, the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who hired workers to work in his vineyard. And he hired some workers very early in the morning and agreed to pay them a denarius for the day. And then later on, he went out and found some other workers, brought them in and said, I'll pay you whatever is right. And then later he goes out and finds some more workers, says, come on in and work in my vineyard. And then at the last hour, he goes out and finds some more workers and says, look, come and work in my vineyard. And then at the end of the day, he calls his foreman to pay out the wages. He says, start with the guys who were hired last and then going on to those who were hired first, pay them their wages, pay them each a denarius. So when those who were hired last came and received the denarius, those who were hired first were over here thinking, hey, we worked 12 times as long as those guys, we should be getting 12 denarii.' Score, not so much. They got a denarius in the end and we're like, what's the deal? This is not fair. We bore the burden of the work in the heat of the day and yet they're getting the same amount as we are. This was a parable that communicated To the Jews, the Gentiles are about to be brought into the kingdom with equal status. You guys, who have been part of the covenant community for centuries, have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day under the old covenant administration, which was burdensome. And now here come the Gentiles, who haven't. What have they been doing? They've been off doing their own thing, and now here they get to come in and they're equal with you. Yes, get over it. Jesus' attitude toward them was in God speaking about this parable. And then, the wedding banquet. Kingdom of heaven is like a wedding banquet that a king prepared for his son. And so he sent his servants to go out and invite people to the wedding banquet, but they refused to come. They didn't want to come. They went to their field and another to his business. They had better things to do. Didn't really want to come to the wedding banquet. So then, he says, you know what? Go set fire to those people. Because not only did he send his servants to go and invite them, but those who were invited mistreated the servants and killed them. So the king, in the story, is enraged and he sends his army to burn the city and destroy those murderers, which virtually every commentator will say was manifest in 70 AD when God sent Rome against Jerusalem to destroy her in 70 A.D., which was the manifestation of the end of the age. And there again was a distinction made between the righteous and the wicked. And so at that point, the king says, invite others in, invite everybody. Once again, I believe, representing Gentiles. Hey, the Jews rejected the invitation, invite the Gentiles, just invite everybody into this kingdom. So what we've got here is this ironic role reversal. All right? God's people were thinking in terms of we're God's chosen people because we're Israel. Our enemies are the Gentiles, the nations. And so God is going to give us the kingdom, restore us, and give us uh, victory over our enemies. But what we've got is this ironic role reversal where the true people of God are manifesting those who are in Christ, and the enemies of the people of God are not just the nations. They're the Jews who are unbelievers who are actually persecuting and putting God's true people to death. And it is these enemies who are in the end put to death. It is these enemies that God's true people, Christians, believers, have victory over in the end. So, what I hope you walk away from this morning's message with, a few basic things. One, a basic definition of the king, which is the community or territory over which Christ reigns as king. Second, the nature of the and time in the kingdom, timing being in the time of those kings, in the first century, when Rome was the rule of the day, when Jesus said, hey, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, like right now. And the nature of the kingdom being not of this world, not something that you can observe with your eyes and say, look, there it is, or here it is. It is a spiritual kingdom, not an earthly kingdom. And finally, I hope you walk away with The understanding that I am preaching and teaching, and hopefully you will embrace this point of view as well, I'm preaching and teaching from the point of view that we are citizens in a fully consummated kingdom. In other words, I believe that the scriptures teach that the kingdom has already come in its fullness. Scholars and commentators will point out that in the scriptures we've got this language of Already, but not yet. And it's true. Throughout the New Testament, you've got, uh, both in the Gospels and in the letters, language that describes the kingdom in terms of already, but not yet. The kingdom's already here, because after all, the king is here, he's arrived. But then again, you've got things like, hey, teach us to pray. When you pray, pray like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. In other words, it hasn't come in its fullness yet. To to some degree it had come already, but to another degree it had not yet come. Well, I believe that the scriptures teach that it comes in fullness at the end of the age. So a lot of people today still interpret their Bibles as teaching that the end of the age is the end of human history or the end of planet Earth. I don't believe the scriptures teach that. I believe that the scriptures teach the end of the age as being the end of the Old Covenant age. So, I believe that the end of the Old Covenant age was in 70 A.D., and at that point, the kingdom came in its fullness. And at that point, that temple was destroyed. That temple that marked that old covenant age and was superseded by a, by a uh, temple built not with human hands, but of living stones. At that point, the law of Moses was superseded by the law of Christ. At that point, circumcision of the flesh was su- uh, superseded by circumcision of the heart done by the Spirit. At that point, God's people were no longer defined by grace, but by grace, by being in Christ. And at that point, in 70 AD, at the end of the age, in a fully consummated kingdom, the territory over which God in Christ reigns as king is no longer defined in terms of geography, geographical borders, but is now defined in terms of a heavenly habitation. After all, it is indeed the kingdom of heaven. So that is my hope for you this morning. That you'll walk away understanding the kingdom, the community, a territory over which Christ reigns is king, is a spiritual kingdom, and it is not just already not yet for us, but it is already already for us. <coughs> we are dwelling in and are citizens of a fully consummated kingdom. A kingdom that has arrived in its form. And therefore, as we move forward in the series, we're going to be able to make modern day application from the scriptures about life in the kingdom and we never have to go, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know this is talking about life in the kingdom, but if the kingdom hasn't come in its fullness yet, then to what degree can we apply this? Because maybe this doesn't apply until the kingdom comes in its fullness at some point in our future. I believe it's already here. And I believe we have all of the benefits and all of the wonderful uh, things that are associated with the kingdom at our grasp, right here.